Hello, Avril Danchak here. Welcome to Teaching and Learning Consultation Skills Module 12, Managing Uncertainty in the Consultation, taking a deep dive into all aspects of uncertainty so that clinicians can manage it better and in less stressful ways. The previous podcasts in this series have been about the networking quadrant and the uncertainties that can arise there. This quadrant is concerned with diagnosis, just like the analysing quadrant, but here the clinician is seeking a working diagnosis and needing to enlist the assistance of a group team or network. The number of tests and investigations has never been so enormous, and yet the ready availability of such tests, investigations and referrals can actually increase rather than decrease uncertainties in many situations. Sometimes test results just raise further questions. So I'm delighted to welcome a special guest today to discuss these matters, someone who brings the perspective of a GP early in their career. Welcome Dr Joe Rylands, hello. Pleasure to be here, thank you for having me. Great, before we delve into the complexities of uncertainty in the networking quadrant, Joe, can I just ask you to describe something about your current roles? Uh, yeah, I'm a I'm a full-time GP um, in a fairly deprived part of Manchester and, and, and Trafford, um, and I done some academic stuff before I before I came or well, during GP training, um, and I work as a health inequalities role for the for the neighbourhood, so like the kind of area above um, GP practice, so a few GP practices together. Oh right, excellent. So so you've got both a clinical and a kind of planning role in a way. Yeah, 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 yeah excellent. Now, it's very useful to have perspectives from all stages and different types of career. And there are podcasts in this series from Dr. Phil Hammond, who manages to combine clinical work with being a stand-up comedian, and from very experienced clinicians like Dr. John Lorna, as well as from non-clinicians. We're going to have an excellent podcast coming up later on with Talc's philosopher-in-residence, Professor Kasim Kassam. So it's, it's really useful to have a perspective from somebody who's early on in their career. So thank you for coming. I wondered if it would be helpful to begin by asking you about some of the situations that have resulted in that what do you do when you don't know what to do moments connected with referral and investigations and so on. Yeah, so I mean, I think as a as a new GP and as a trainee, um, have a have a lot of these moments and and slowly get better at get better at managing them. Um, I mean, I think I think a big thing moving from hospital to 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 primary care is uh, is kind of switching out of that. Um, problem-solving mindset I think particularly in terms of um, a big big thing in primary care is is tests and what tests you order and what the purpose of those is um, and using that to kind of often manage your your uncertainty um, and all of that kind of links to sometimes just trying to get patients out, out, out of the door. Right and and do you ever find that doing tests and investigations actually don't do much to manage the uncertainty? Does it solve the problem of uncertainty? No because you're just kicking the can down the road a lot a lot of the time and, and also you're just leading to an unsatisfying consultation for both you and and for the patient if that happens. Right okay so so tests and investigations are quite tricksy actually aren't they in a way. Um, do you ever have problems with patients who want things that aren't really clinically necessary for example? Yeah I mean I think that's a that's a huge part of GP isn't it so I mean if you look at some of the studies about how much of um, how much of the presentations from patients is actually a, a medical fact a medical problem and um, that we're trying we're trying to solve how much of it is is, psych- is is psychological or persistent physical symptoms that we can't um, we can't investigate away yes we can't investigate away yeah mm. um, so yeah I think that's a that's a huge that's a huge part of it and again it's about that mindset of, of switching from 
uh, problem solving to kind of managing and communicating things to patients. Yes, and I think it's interesting, it's it's not just moving away from problem solving, but it's perhaps understanding what the problem is in a more holistic sense, yeah. isn't it? So the problem isn't just the symptom of a headache, let's say, but as we would say in primary care, the problem has a physical, psychological and social dimension. Absolutely. So you have to think about how you're going to solve that whole problem, not necessarily to fix it for the patient, but how you're going to approach that problem in a, in a reasonable way. And I think um, there's a lot to discuss there. And one of the things that you've alluded to is that if you do tests um, because you're not quite sure what's going on and you just want to get the patient out of the room, that kicks the can down the road and very often doesn't give you an answer that you can work with later. And this comes back to some of the discussions we were having in the analysing quadrant about being sure about the purpose of the tests what they're for, what they're not for, and really discussing that in advance with the patient so that if they're going to be normal, the patient is already expecting perhaps they're going to be normal rather than them thinking it's going to give them an exact answer. Yeah. How, how have you found your approach to explaining tests as, as developed as your trainings? Oh, I think, I mean, I think what you spoke about is, is, is exactly it, isn't it? I think if you, if you feel uncertain and you've not communicated that uncertainty, then the patient can go away thinking that the, that the test is going to provide this perfect thing that they can take a medication for and everything will, will, will be better, which obviously sometimes happens, but is rarely the case. And I think if you're kicking the can down the road, you don't even know if you're kicking it down, down the right road. Um, and I think as is almost always the the solution GP, it's about effective communication. And if you explain that uncertainty and what you're doing the test for um, from the beginning, then it solves the problems later when it comes back as as normal or, as normal or not or having negative. a magic answer. Yeah, yeah and, and I think there are specific skills in the TALP modules. In TALP module five, there's, there's a whole chapter on specific skills for discussing uncertainty which basically boil down to not shrugging and saying I've got no idea what's going on although some very experienced doctors can occasionally get away with that but I think most clinicians need to be saying something like look it's not completely clear-cut this is how my thinking is going you've got these symptoms which could mean that but you've got these other symptoms which perhaps don't mean that so, you know, it's not completely clear cut at this stage. Sometimes time will tell us what's going on. Sometimes it will be helpful to check on some important things being normal so that we don't have to worry about those. And then, you know, da, da, whatever. So you can check out your thinking. It's helpful for you to think through aloud in a way. I think often when you think aloud, things start to make more sense, don't they? Um, I often don't know what I've thought till I've started talking about it kind of thing. But then also the patient knows that you're thinking and that's very that inspires trust actually. Even if yeah. you don't know the answer, the fact that you're thinking it through can be I know, I, I, I think I think that's that's so powerful being able it's, there's a couple of things there. I think it's about being it's about being confident with your uncertainties and I think those you know, referencing those experienced GPs who can get away with just saying shrug I don't or like shrugging I don't know um, it's, it's about the confidence that you have to do that and communicating that confidence to the patient that mm. despite the fact you're shrugging you still care um, but I think uh, I think as well you're talking about um, communicating that uncertainty as well I think there's such a breakthrough moment for me as a GP when for the first time you say to a patient I don't know I don't have the answer mm. and I think as a that's I think that's the biggest thing for me I had to get over moving from secondary care to primary care where you know you would you would 
taught and trained that you must have the answer and that if you don't have the answer you 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 failed and mm. you know, the way that we're that we're and taught, someone else has got to find the answer and, haven't yeah they? someone yeah. else has got to find yeah. it yeah um, and I, yeah yeah and i think being able to verbalize that uncertainty um is really it's really powerful and also just i found that as soon as i started doing that consultations just go much better as More well smoothly yeah yeah i think there's two things there i think there's one thing it, it depends how you say i don't know doesn't it because yeah. it's it may be um i'm not sure that i use that exact phrase very often no. but I, I might say it's it's not very clear because and there's this thing and there's that thing and this is how i'm thinking about it and the thinking means we're still uncertain about where to go i might say for example um you've come you're a new patient to me with this very super rare disease whatever yeah i don't actually know who which specialist in this area deals with that but i can find that out and i can make sure that you get referred to the right place because yeah. i can go and find out or sometimes i've said to patients look this is very unclear a lot of people have been thinking about this problem i'm not the first person yeah. you've discussed it with um and it's still not very clear actually what i'd like to do with your permission is I've got a couple of colleagues who are very good at this sort of thing. Could I have a chat with them at our meeting later this week or whatever? And then perhaps we can have a conversation further down the line, have a think about what to do. And again, most people who um, know you're thinking about them in a caring and serious way, not in a mushy way, but in a serious way, will be thrilled to, to think that. And sometimes I've looked things up after a patient has left the room when I've had a bit of a nagging doubt and I thought, hmm, I'll look that up. And then I phoned them and said, look, I, I had another think and I looked something up and there is this other thing that we might think about considering, whatever it is. Mean, I can't think of a good example. But when you do that, patients are very trusting yeah. because they know you're thinking about them even when they're not there, which tells you something very important about how much somebody cares about you, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it's really powerful. I think you, you mentioned the word care a few times. I think that's, that's the important. That's actually, I think, a lot of what patients are, are looking for. I had, um, I had a patient only, only this week that I uh, that I messaged because I'd actually, um, from my my point of view, I think I sent them to the wrong to the wrong person, and there, and there was a delay, and they were very anxious about getting seen in secondary care, um, and there's been delays. Um, I was expecting them to be angry, and actually I got a response back that they were very touched that I was thinking about them, and that I'd, I'd even looked into it and sent messages. And I think yeah. I think that's um, yeah I think that's really powerful. And that's what we're kind of there for as a GP. Yes, I, I think um, there's a sort of phrase, isn't it, that the specialists are there to look after the diseases yeah. and the patients with those diseases come and go, whereas in primary care, our job is to look after the patients who have those diseases. The diseases come and go, but the patients stay with us. And that doesn't mean to say that you mustn't look after the disease. Of course, you need to know things, you need to be skilled, you need to be knowledgeable, uh, you need to be thorough and all those things. And as our um, motto says, you have to combine that with caring for about the person and being concerned about them as an individual. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that does make a big difference to all the discussions you might have. I think one of the things I'd like to highlight as well is before we do tests and investigations is to really make sure the ones we're choosing are going to be relevant for that person. And that does mean that the first part of the consultation needs to be appropriate. So um, in TALC module three, we talk about effective information gathering, which includes, for example, reading between the lines, picking up clues and cues about what somebody either might be worried about or even sometimes symptoms that they're hesitant to disclose. I mean, somebody who's worried about heart disease might be quite hesitant to mention chest pain in case 
case you say, yeah, well, that means you've got heart disease, and they might kind of try and obfuscate a little bit. Yes. Um, but also, um, like they might say, well, it's a bit difficult on a hill. Yeah. Well, you've got to pick that. What do you mean by a bit difficult? Well, you know, when I go up a hill, it's hard. Well, what in what way? Well, it does hurt. Ah, well, that's quite an important symptom to know about, isn't it? If you're yeah. thinking about chest pain and heart disease. But also, I think knowing where the patient's coming from, what they're thinking about, what their concerns are, what they're hoping for... Is, is not just a, a kind of fluffy bit of thing, but it can help your diagnosis. And it can really help you to decide effective management. And I'd be interested in your comments about that, because sometimes people think this is a bit like icing rather than the important cake underneath. Excellent, excellent pun with icing. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean... I oh, think... God, I didn't even know I'd done that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I think as well, so just going back to that point about the what how the patient's presenting their, their symptoms as well, I think it's about about titrating it a bit to to the patient like is it is it Meryl who will who always plays down her symptoms and actually you need to dial up what mm. they're actually thinking what what you said or is it the other way around where Jim is always worried about everything mm. and you need to pair you need to yeah. pair down what what his symptoms are and I think the classic these days is when you get a message through because it's, it's written and it's I I'm, I'm in terrible chest pain I'm going to die just because they want to be seen when you get them it's it's actually it's actually fine well it's we're talking about picking up cues and whether understanding somebody's thoughts and concerns is like a waste of time in the consultation or whether it gives you in what way it helps you actually this is this is the classic thing for gp trainees isn't it when you when you start your training and you have this huge breadth of of knowledge that you uh, you feel like you're expected to know as an encyclopedia and all your trainer wants to talk about is whether you whether you've asked them how many how many pets and uh, and and family members you have and you get incredibly frustrated you like, no I need to know everything about cardiology and then there's that wonderful uh, like light bulb moment when you you realize that if you ask them this patients will just tell you what their problem is they'll give you more information they'll feel like you've listened to them and everything else will go much more smoothly and they'll also listen to what you say as well which I think is a big is yeah. a big thing. Well, it builds trust, doesn't it? If you're interested in them as an individual and what they're really bothered about and what's bothering them and, and how it's bothering them, what the impact is, well, they're going to trust much more what you yeah. say later on. And that relationship is a mutual one. It goes both ways, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and I, I think this is quite interesting in the difference between primary and secondary care too, because in secondary care, apart from accident and emergency, nearly always somebody's been seen by somebody and then sent there. Yeah. So in, a, in an endocrinology clinic, that's never the first time anybody's been seen. And also the patients don't kind of choose in a sense, they're, they're, they're going for a referral. Whereas anybody at home can think, well, I'd like to talk to a primary care clinician of some sort about my problem. So they're choosing it. And so you really need to know why they're bothered about what they're bothered about, because yeah. that does make a difference to your management, doesn't it, and what you're going to do. And even to diagnosis, like we mentioned before, people might not tell you things unless you show empathy and concern. Yeah, um, I think I think as well. You you were talking um, you were talking earlier about getting the patients on the right on the right track, um, and, establish, and establishing that that link with care. And I think a lot of the time when when I have my uh, I don't know what to do moments. It's it's often when I feel like them being confronted by them expecting me to solve everything in 10, 15 minutes, when actually if you show some interest and find out what their problem is, I, I find that they're expect, 
how they're presenting their expectations reduces because that's actually not they don't actually expect you to solve everything in no. 10 no. minutes no. just they, feels like that at yeah, first but no they don't they, really they want you to understand yes. and make some progress towards yes and a lot of problems are clear i mean some problems might be dealt with in a single consultation but in and a lot of problems particularly with older people or when there's comorbidity or whatever or, or comorbid health mental health problems for example you know it's going to take a little bit of time but the important thing is to really understand where they're at and then to agree a kind of plan with them isn't it is yeah. to say well we might start by doing this but i'd like to see you next week to dig deeper into that or we need to do these other things and that's much easier then um, and those become relationships rather than transactions. And yeah. I, I think I'm going to say something about that um, later on, because I think this is also a very important aspect of how we achieve patient safety, actually, mm. um, and which is not often underappreciated. Um, I'd like to just come back a little bit to this idea, first of all, that you're not going to fix everything. So if you're not going to fix everything, you've got to kind of hold on to the problem for a yes. bit in some way. Um and are there any difficulties about, you know, holding um, uncertainty so that, for example, organising follow-up and things like that? Are there, are there any difficulties with that, do you think? Do you mean in terms of, like, practically organising it or as a verb? Like not being able to solve everything at well, once. I think if you've got to the point where you're not going to fix everything today, you then need to have a plan going forwards, don't you? Yeah. Which might include, well, when am I going to see this person again? Yeah. Uh, and in what circumstances am I going to telephone them or what? But sometimes um, in different places, people experience difficulties in organising that kind of follow-up. And I just would be interested in your comments on how easy that is to do and whether people think it's valuable. Yeah, I think there's a there's a few things there, isn't there? I think the the first one is getting to a point where the patient is happy for it, things to be delayed and accepts that that you're going to, to do that and trusts you that it will happen. Um, and then obviously it's a it's a very difficult time in the NHS at the minute, and there's a lot of pressure on appointments and a lot of pressure also from practices as well mm-hmm. to see new patients and keep that turnover. Um, so yeah, I think that is that is difficult. So so there's a, a kind of perception that follow up is uh, either a bit of a luxury or that you shouldn't be organising your own follow up kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, I think this is a really really interesting point because um, there's been a over the last probably ten to fifteen years a massive emphasis on speed of access. Yes. That you should be able to access help quickly, and yet if you talk to patients and if you've ever been a patient yourself. One of the things they value is seeing the same person more than once. People always say when they've been to hospital, you never see the same doctor more than once. Nobody seems to properly understand me. And when they do see the same person, you know, repeatedly, uh, they find that very helpful. It's much easier to organise management and so on. So continuity is very important. And yes, it's been... Uh, to some extent downplayed hasn't it and and if you just see somebody once it can become a transaction you know I've got yeah. these symptoms here's some treatment but then if the underlying problems or the overall problems aren't dealt with they'll just come back and see somebody else and I, I think that increases demand actually it's called failure demand there's a special term for yeah. it in systems thinking where if somebody comes but you don't really deal with the problem they're going to come again because you didn't deal with the problem, and that's a failure demand. It's because you didn't do the right thing in the first place. Um, but also, I'd like you to 
I mean, I'm very keen on continuity for lots of reasons, but I, I wonder how you see the kind of evidence around that. Do you think it's a valuable thing, continuity? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I also feel quite passionately about it. I think the fact we both feel passionate about it is why we're GPs. Um, I mean, yeah, to be a bit blunt, I think if you're not if you're not interested in, in continuity of care, you may as well be in A&E. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think there is one more thing about the kind of pressure that I suppose you didn't mention on it is that I sometimes feel that I shouldn't be organising follow-up because that's a different patient that I can't that I can't see when there's this huge mm. demand. But I really think that's something we need to fight because, as you said, the the evidence on continuity is is actually incredibly strong both in the UK and and internationally as well. There's um there's a huge study from from Norway showing how much it that uh, cumulatively um it reduced cardiovascular disease and and uh, and in the UK as well, that those those results have been have been borne out, and also that patients are happier. I think we spend a lot of time um, sometimes um, worrying about what patients, how patients perceive us. Yet we're not doing the things that evidence shows will make them happier, make our relationships ships better. I think also it makes clinicians happier. Yeah, it's so much easier to see somebody you know and where there's mutual trust. Generally speaking. Um, and you don't waste a lot of time finding out things that you already know. They don't have to tell you things they've told you before. Um, and sometimes very subtle things can happen. I remember somebody sitting in with me once and a patient came in and went, it's September. And I went, yeah, it's always tricky. And then she said something like, I want you to look at this rash. And we did whatever the business was of the day. And afterwards, somebody was going, well, what was all that about? And it was that September was the anniversary of a very major bereavement for her. Yeah. And she always actually was ill in September with something. And there was this, because I knew that and I'd seen her over a few Septembers, we were able to acknowledge the fact it was still painful for her that her husband had died in rather tragic circumstances. But we didn't have to delve into it. But she knew that I cared enough to know about that. And it was a, you know, like a five second interaction. But I think it meant quite a lot to both of us, really. And I'd like to just reiterate a little bit about the evidence, because continuity is associated with fewer hospital admissions, which everybody is obsessed about. Um, And also reduced death rates, which is also quite a good outcome, I would say, for most people. (laughs) And actually, even in primary care, um, if there's continuity, it reduces practice workload by about 5%, which is quite a significant thing when you're thinking about there are thousands. I think in general practice, there are what? Uh, I can't remember how many, 30 million appointments every month or something like that. So a 5% decrease in that is quite a lot of workload. So so continuity has a lot of things. And I think it's interesting that um, when we're referring or doing tests and things, people often say the guidelines say to do this or the evidence says to do this. Mm. Um, but we don't take so much notice of the evidence around continuity. And I, I wonder why you think that is. Have you got any thoughts? I mean, I'm I'm a GP, so I always feel like we're uh, we're at the bottom of the of the of the heap, up, like aren't we? And I think this is it's also it's not the it's not the flashy stuff, is it? It's not um it's not a new cancer drug. It's not um it's not some updated guideline that shows you know X drug doesn't isn't quite as good as we thought it was, um and and it's also quite a hard it's quite a hard fluffy thing to to show and sell to people. Yeah, I think I think it's also. I think one of the difficulties is is that targets can often distort what people are doing and often be quite um, um, 
terrifying to manage and not everything can be managed with a target or a pathway can it um, but I think it does come back to what we value and what's most important and at the end of the day every one of our patients is going to get sick and die but they all want to be looked after and cared for and cared about during that process even if it takes many years which which sometimes it it does yeah and I think as well as a new as a new GP I found that when I started doing more uh, having more continuity two there's two huge benefits one was that I learned more because it's, it's all very well you know you, you see a patient you make a decision you, you give them something or you refer them but if you don't see them again unless you're incredibly good at, at documenting everything and going back and looking you, you don't find out what happens to them mm. um, and I think you know it's quite good if even if they come back and say Dr Rylands that was terrible <laughs> like yeah. it didn't help it's still opportunity to learn um, but I also think it's quite good for just your happiness and resilience as well because often you'll, you'll find that you, you did do the right thing and they come back and they're, and they're happier um, and especially if you've got your communication skills right and they and they will come back and then they'll trust you more they'll tell you more things those consultations will go really easily yes um, I think that's really really interesting how it's a sort of mutual benefit I think Balint used to talk about the relationship being a, like a mutual investment bank that different people put that's a put, uh, put, you know both sides invest in it and then you you both benefit from it um, so yeah I think that's really interesting I'd, li- I'd like to come back a little bit now I'm going to rein us in because we could talk about continuity yes, all day um, and, and just have a bit more of a think about uncertainty when we're doing referrals or tests and investigations because there's there's other issues about how we explain this to patients aren't we so sometimes phrases like um, I think this pain is caused by irritable bowel but I want to rule out cancer or um, <laughs> you were worried about pneumonia but your chest sounds normal and healthy have you found any difficulties with those kind of approaches? Yes. So I'm I'm trying. Um, I think I think I've, I was laughing because I'm sure that I've done these. I'm sure I've I've made those faux pas in the in the in the past. And what effect have they? What effect do you think that has? Uh, I mean, you need to be obviously very careful dropping the c word. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 about understanding what the patient is list is takes away from what you've said um, and the word. But tends to be a bit of a, um, a bit of a break, um, and it's and it's about and it's also it's about their expectations of what you're of what you're saying is do they think that your the chest X-ray being clear is is good news are, are you on the same on the same wavelength? Mm. I th- I think that's right. I'm I'm going to just talk a little bit about uh, the skillful use of words. Um, because I'm going to have a small campaign to abolish the word but in medical practice I think because most of the time whatever you say before the but is ignored and people only remember the bit afterwards so if you say I've examined you and everything is normal but I'm going to do some tests to rule out cancer they will only remember that the doctor thinks I've got cancer which is not helpful for anybody and it's also doesn't they don't hear the rule out bits because you, yeah. you actually don't think they've got cancer you're just doing a little tick box to put your own mind at rest aren't you really in a way so I think it's really important to use and in that situation you know I can see you're feeling pretty unwell and you mentioned a worry about pneumonia and this is what I'm finding which is the facts you know your pulse is this your chest is this blah blah um, and if there was pneumonia, I'd expect your pulse to be very fast. I'd expect you to have a fever. I'd expect to be changes on, on examining you. And so that, that is very positive for me. And now I'm wondering what your response to that is. <laughs> because then somebody's much more likely to say, well, it doesn't sound like I've got pneumonia then, does it? In which case, you're off the hook. Yeah. 
they may say, I'm still worried about pneumonia because when I had it last year, it started very insidiously or whatever. In which case, you might then decide on your, your method of managing that, which one of which might be to do a chest X-ray, another might be to safety net and see them the next day or follow them the, the next day. But at least you're then on the same page rather than kind of almost dismissing their symptoms by saying, I know you're worried about pneumonia, but everything's fine. It's kind of a pushing away, isn't it? So I would say and, I'd say, instead of but, really. A- any yeah. thoughts about that? Oh, I-, I think your example there of giving of them being able to come back and say, well, this is actually how my pneumonia started before, I think that's really important as well, mm. that flexibility um, to be to be open to them challenging. And if, you, if you're saying but, or especially if you're saying cancer, um, you shut everything down and they won't, and they mm. won't respond to you. Mm. And I think you actually have to say not um, are you happy with that but what thoughts have you got now or what's your response to that because then they will tell you the first time I said to somebody what's your response to what I've just been saying I thought god that's so clunky they're just going to think I'm nuts they said well my response is this and they told me something really really helpful about what they were planning to do or, or not planning to do and the consultation just slithered along and I thought oh that's 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 actually really works so it's worth trying things out. Yeah, the other small words change that um, I find really interesting is the difference between do you have, uh, is there something else and do you have anything else? Yeah. And how, if you say, do you have something else, it, it, you get like, I think there's a study that showed like 90% more of like hidden agendas because yeah. it implies that you know something, even if you don't. Yeah. Um, well, and, and also if you say, have you got any questions? People will always say no. Yeah. But if you say, what questions have you got now? People That's will go... One well, you've told me I've got to take these tablets, but have I got to take them for the rest of my life? Or how likely are they to work? Or whatever. All of which are very useful and important questions. Or can I still take them with my other tablets? Or do I have to eat them with food? Whatever. But they're all actually helpful things because they tell you what they want to know and what they need to know at that point. So I I think you're right. That's very important. And and if and when are very important too. Yes. You know, so you can say, when we get the blood tests back and they're normal, which is what we're hoping then we'll do this or we'll start to do this now, you know, if, as we're not really expecting, da-da-da. So you can kind of nuance your explanation with these small words in quite subtle ways. Yeah, right? and these are all ways to get the churn of thoughts that patients have out, out of their head because when you go and see your GP, you've got, whilst you're talking, they're having all of their anxieties and worries and if you let, you can't put anything, you can't, they won't take anything into their heads whilst you not let those ideas out. Yeah, yeah. In parenting, somebody once said to me, you have to let the bad feelings out before the, ba- the good feelings can come in. I think that's when your child's having a tantrum. Yeah. But I think in a way that's true in consultations. You have to let people express their worries and concerns and bad feelings about what's going on so that you can then look at it and decide where you're going next in, in a more helpful way. Um We've talked a bit about language and I mentioned before about using words like spasm and relaxation or how we explain. But I, I know you were talking a little bit um, when we discussed what we might think about in this podcast that uh, explaining investigations in the context of persistent physical symptoms or persistent fu- functional symptoms can be difficult. And I just wondered if you'd like to comment on the difficulties there. Yeah, I mean, I think this is often I think these are often the most difficult consultations but they can be the most rewarding um, and I did some work around um, like dissociative uh, strokes mm-hmm. um, when I was in second when I was in secondary care and actually want an example of the power of good communication there's actually some studies where when patients who have dissociative strokes um, have their symptoms 
explain to them in a way that they understand. I think it's like in one study, seventy percent of them it was gone within a year. Right. Um, and I think something that I really learned from that is about they talk about dual um, dual differentials. So the patient thinks that there is a there's a physical reason for it, and you will investigate that. But actually, I think this is a system physical psychological element to this, mm. and the treatment or the is for this, and we're going to do both of them at the same time. I'm not saying that, not saying that I'm right and you're wrong. I'm yeah, you don't even need to go that that far in a way, do you? Because I think you can say, look, that you, there are these persistent symptoms that you've got. Mm. I think we can think about trying to improve them in these ways. At the same time, we need to make sure that important things are normal. That yeah. that, for example, your knee X-ray is normal and there's no arthritis there, or something like that. Whatever it relevant is. Um, and I think also you can be explicit and say we need to look at you as a whole because yeah. you know if you're um, if you've got pain it's always going to be made worse if other things in your life aren't going well yeah. and uh, if we can improve your general health which will include your mental health it's likely to improve your pain as well and let's look at you holistically and see what we can do and there are models for that like there's a, a model called firma which says everybody needs to do something about their physical health, their emotional health, their relationships. I can't remember all the things. And Phil Hammond says you should drop your clangers every day, which is is how you promote good health. And clangor stands for connection, uh, learning. Um, uh, I can't even remember them all because I can only remember three. Um, but that you should give something back, and that you should be grateful, that you should relax and eat well and sleep well and puts that all together and, and actually looking at somebody as a whole again builds trust yeah because you you're seeing them as an individual not just as knee pain or a, a no I like I like that moving towards the kind of place maybe I'm still slightly in secondary care that I will solve the uh, the problem yeah. well you have to we have to attend to the problems as well yeah. and, and treat the problems um, and also look at people as a whole because the, 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 so much is going on for most people isn't it um, I think one other thing that just to think about with uh, tests and investigations and referrals is is one thing um, I'm going to come on to which is about to know what kind of things are available but I also thought we ought to talk a little bit about the limitations of testing yeah. uh, which was really brought home to me during the pandemic when everybody was talking about positive Covid tests and so on and whenever all the time people come up in the news and they say there's a new screening test for something which is 90% accurate and that kind of thing and actually, that's very misleading because that still will lead to a lot of false positives and false negatives. And I'm wondering what you've learned about needing to understand the limitations of tests. Yeah, I mean, I think this goes back to the kind of the beginning of our conversation, doesn't it? If you're kicking the can down the road or you're ordering a test for the patient or often for your reassurance, knowing yeah, knowing that, you know, even the PSA, which has been rolled out, has a lot of false positives. Um as well as obviously the huge false negatives that I think most people are aware of. Um, and yeah, you, you need to not think of tests as a solution or a, or a fix. Yeah, they're not a binary thing. No. Well, rarely are they a binary thing where they're completely normal or completely abnormal. I suppose one of my uh, reflections here is I don't think in my whole career I've ever seen a normal MRI scan of the spine of, of, of somebody's back. No. I don't think I've ever, ever seen one that was reported as this 25-year-old has a normal MRI scan of the spine because everybody now looks in such detail 
that they will report all kinds of slight thickenings or, you know, little bits of OA or, or all kinds of different things. And blood tests are the same. They're, you know, their normal range is two standard deviations from a normal range. And that doesn't mean that just because you're slightly outside that you're necessarily actually abnormal. I think this comes a lot with cholesterol as well. People yes. say, you know, if you've got a normal cholesterol, that's somehow normal. And if you've got a high cholesterol, that's somehow abnormal. Whereas in fact, you can't interpret a cholesterol outside of a total cardiovascular risk, really, and other factors. And a normal cholesterol in a heavy smoking um, person with a terrible family history who's got uncontrolled diabetes, blah, 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 and is very overweight, never exercises, might be actually completely irrelevant yeah. compared to what you're going to do. Whereas a high cholesterol in somebody who has no other risk factors may be connected to something else, like their thyroid problem or something, you know. So I think it's very important to understand the limitations of tests. Oh, lipids are the bane of my life on my on-call on day. When someone has ordered, uh, when you're going through, or you're going through your own bloods and someone has ordered a random lipid on a, on a, on a patient and then there's not enough to do a Q risk or mm. there was no point doing it any, anyway yeah, yeah. and then the patient will come back because they want to know what their cholesterol is and it's slightly raised and you have to explain that yeah. actually yeah that's not necessarily a problem it's not, yeah. and I think the point of this is that you're making more you're making more work for yourself you're causing your patients more anxiety um which would could have been mitigated by good communication and yeah um, and being honest from the with, with yourself and them from the beginning yeah I think this is the tick box problem isn't it because it's very easy to just say oh, i'll just tick another box and do the cholesterol sort of thing without yeah. kind of thinking well is that going to help this particular patient at this time for the problem that they come to me with um and i think there's a whole other question which which we won't go into now about whether um treatment with medications which work at population level and mitigate cardiovascular risk for example at population level are necessarily right for given individuals and that's a whole uh, yeah. Different question. So, no, so I would uh, I would uh, look out for the podcast I'm doing with Dr. Roy Walworth where we discuss this this very same issue. So I, th- I think it's very very interesting. But the other thing about um, thinking about limitations of tests is also thinking about when you've got a referral network of clinics or services and so on about knowing what's in your clinic network and so on. And I think when you work in primary care, you build up a huge tacit knowledge of say, what services are available for musculoskeletal problems and so on. Mm. Uh, and I'm wondering if you could say something about the need to develop that knowledge in the location where you're working. Yeah, so I mean, I've um, I've felt the sharp end of this recently because I, I moved um, moved from one moved from, moved from Liverpool to Manchester, which is not very far away. But you really don't appreciate how much you rely on n- knowing what services are, having worked in the hospital so you know the doctors you know what clinics are um, and then coming somewhere new and then having to build all of that up again you realize how much extra <laughs> extra work that is for you um, and also causes problems where you refer to the wrong uh, to the wrong person or again talking about expectations you give the wrong expectation to the patient of I, I think this is going to happen mm-hmm. um, I find that particularly with mental health because obviously it's such a changing um, environment and there's so many different things and it's also something you have to kind of often convince patients um, obviously working with them but convince patients to go to something and it's awful if they get there and it's not what you promised. Yes what you hope for yes and services vary a lot particularly mental health services vary a lot in who they see where they see them how they do it and so on yeah. and in fact and the other thing is changes 
in services happen all the time as well. So you can't kind of know everything about that. But I think if you start to think about the purpose of your refer referral quite clearly, so there's the reason for the referral, somebody's got this problem, but you also need to know what is the purpose of it? What are both you and the patient hoping to get out of the referral? But then there's a kind of another layer to that, which is how do you achieve that yeah. from the referral? And as you say, there's a lot of local knowledge in that and, and knowing the local system. And you have to talk to people locally. And often your admin team will know this is how the gastrointestinal referral system works or this is how the iron deficiency pathway works or whatever. And you, and then you build up that implicit knowledge yeah. over time. And, and referral is not a benign process either. I mean, my, my trainer was always really uh, big on this, that if you're referring, you need to know what you're referring for and also know what they will do with it. So his, his big thing was trying to reduce people from having unnecessary colonoscopies and mm. be aware that if you refer a patient to gastro, uh, gastroenterology with saying I, I don't know what this is or I'm not sure what this is chances are they're going to they're gonna put a camera where the patient doesn't want a camera um, <laughs> and and being 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 yeah. aware of that and not using not not allowing a patient to have a colonoscopy because you weren't sure what you what it was or confident to explain yeah. a diagnosis yeah. to them yes I think that's very interesting because of course in secondary care it's the case that if you've got a hammer everything looks like a nail <laughs> isn't it so you know gastroenterologists that's what they do um so it, it is important to have that sense as well that a referral is not a completely innocuous thing because yeah. as well if you it's very important to hit the ball over the right net in a way isn't it because if you i don't know if you've got somebody with respiratory problems and you send them to a respiratory physician um because you you're not solving it but really they've got a cardiology problem because you haven't really kind of quite thought it through enough it's going to cause a lot of delay isn't it yeah. uh, because they go through one system then another system and even if they get referred quite quickly it's not as efficient as getting them in the right sort of silo if you like at, at yeah. the beginning and uh, coming back to continuity i think it's important to know what happens afterwards as well as you say there's a huge benefit to your learning from the feedback you get after referrals or after a test and investigations if you see the patient again um because yeah. it's a way of developing your judgment isn't it if yeah. you know what happens and you go well i judged that one right it all went well that one didn't go quite as I'd hoped. So next time I need to do a bit more of this or a bit less of that, then over time your judgment develops. And good judgment is what patients really value in their clinicians, actually. Yeah. Um, they, they know that it's a factor. They, don't, they can't articulate it, but they will know that they trust certain people with certain problems because they think they'll make a sensible, or I would say well-judged, assessment yeah. of it. Yeah. Well, that's really good. Well, thank you. We've had a really interesting discussion and quite free-ranging as well, as, um, which is great. Um, and I, I think I'd like to say that having clarity in your clinical reasoning before you embark on any tests and, and investigations is going to reduce uncertainties in this. And also, from what we've been saying, explaining clearly to patients what's going on with tests and investigations, what they're for, and more importantly, what you're expecting them to show and what you're hoping they will show will avoid this kind of kicking the can down the road where there's still a lot of problems that haven't been solved later on. Um, and I think we also have to distinguish between those moments when we don't know what to do, so we say, let's just do some tests, and the ones where there's an intrinsic uncertainty, like if somebody's got rectal bleeding, you may not know the exact cause, but you do kind of know what needs to happen. They need to have appropriate examinations and imaging or, or yeah. uh, endoscopy or whatever it is for that particular problem. 
So um, I'd like to say thank you very much, Joe. Thank you for coming. It's been a really interesting discussion. Oh, no, thank you very much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Great. And I'd just like to highlight some coming up podcasts in the Negotiating Quadrant, which is coming next. And this is when the diagnosis is known, but when an individual clinician working with a patient gets stuck around how to create an effective management plan. Thank you for listening to Talk 12 on managing uncertainty in consultations. Make sure to get all the episodes by subscribing to the Talc Talks podcast on Podbean or your other podcast provider. All the podcasts and the other teaching and learning consultation skills materials are available at consultationskills.com. Our book, Mapping Uncertainty in Medicine, What Do You Do When You Don't Know What To Do? by myself, Avril Danchak, Alison Lee and Geraldine Murphy is available online and through all good bookshops.